following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. One time I asked a man, Sir, if you were to die tonight and appear before God's judgment seat, and he said to you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I ask this question a lot. It's on our spiritual questionnaire when we go door to door. It should be very familiar to most of you at this point. But this particular man gave an answer that I'll never forget. It was almost as if it had been taken right out of Scripture from the account of Jesus with the wise young ruler. The man said to me, well, I'd say to God that I've never done anything wrong, deserving of hell. I've, I've always lived a, a pretty good life. I've never killed anyone. That was his standard of a pretty good life. He said, I never killed anyone. And, I, and then he continues, I've always taken care of my family, I love my kids, and so on. But I just remember him opening up with that line, I've never taken somebody else's life. I've never killed anybody. And you know, Christ addresses that kind of thinking, that just restraining yourself from taking the life of another constitutes some kind of righteousness, meriting God's favor. Christ addresses that level of superficial thinking, as I hope to demonstrate tonight, in our passage this evening, just as he begins to explain what righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees looks like. Remember in Matthew 5.20, in just our previous verse, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, of course, the very first question on everyone's mind is, well, what does such righteousness look like? And Jesus begins with addressing the thought of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees, drawn out of rabbinical teaching from old, that, well, if you restrain yourself from killing anyone, well, then you fulfilled the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill or murder. In the verses to come between now and the end of the chapter, what we've read together, Jesus will present a five-fold exposition of the moral law of God in six discrete statements from verses 21 through 48. And he's showing here how the law of God is in fact much deeper and much higher than anything the scribes or the Pharisees taught. Indeed, the law of God is spiritual. It's intended to be set in the deepest, innermost recesses of the heart by the Spirit of God. So today we're going to consider what Christ has to say about the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not kill in verses 21 through 26 here in our passage. And I'll seek to show you something very simple. Very simple, boys and girls. In fact, I expect that you'll be able to remember this if you give forth just a little bit of effort. And that is that Christ addresses anger by making peace. Christ addresses anger by making peace. Remember, Jesus is on the attack. 
He's attacking the bad teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees who've upheld a man-made tradition that minimized the requirements of God's law and God's righteousness and holiness, where they saw murder as the only thing prohibited by the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Jesus goes deeper and addresses the unholy anger that so frequently assaults and twists our hearts, leading us on the path that then terminates in murder. And so Christ addresses anger by making peace. We'll look at this under two headings. I'm sure you can guess them. Addressing anger and making peace. Addressing anger in verses 21 and 22. Making peace in verses 23 through 26. So first, how does Christ address anger? Well, he does two things here. In verse 21, he's unmasking the religious show of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then in verse 22, he's recovering the heart of the law as our great prophet king, as a great reformer for the nation of Israel and the church of God. So how does he unmask the religious show of the Pharisees in verse 21? Look at the verse with me. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, as it's translated in our text, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, this opening line here, to the ancients, or that the ancients were told, it, it, it would perhaps be better translated as, you have, heard, um, you have heard that it was said by the ancient ones, by the men of old. And there's a couple reasons for that. The first reason is the Greek word there translated as the ancients is usually describing ancient teachers. So those who would be speaking, giving the interpretation of the law. But it's also that um, if we understand it that way, the rest of the passage makes sense where Christ interposes his teaching as a corrective for the false teaching, which perhaps they've heard in the past. You've heard it said by them, but now you're hearing it's said by me, such and such. You track with it. But regardless of whether we understand it as by the ancients, which is suggested by the King James, or to the ancients, as it's suggested here in, in the New American Standard, the end of the story is this is an established teaching that he's confronting. He's confronting something that has been around for a long, long time. And he's giving a contrast. He's contrasting that traditional, that ancient teaching, which the disciples would have been grown up on in their synagogues. And he's saying, ah, instead I give you this. Now some interpreters want to say that Christ is bringing a new law, that he's bringing something altogether new and foreign to the law of Moses. He's correcting and surpassing the superficial righteousness of the law as delivered on Sinai, bringing a true spiritual law. And that sounds close to right, because that's what it is, merely close to right, but not quite all the way there. You see, Christ is not correcting Moses. He's correcting those who have interpreted Moses wrongly. And this is where the New American Standard is very helpful. Look at verse 21 as it's printed in your Bibles if you have them open in front of you. If you have a New American Standard Bible open, you'll notice that the words, you shall not commit murder, are capitalized, indicating that this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. We all know where it's from. It's from Exodus 20 in the first place, and Deuteronomy 5 in the second place, where the law is published for us. But then notice the second phrase, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Is that capitalized? Is that in all caps in your Bibles? No, because it doesn't come from the Old Testament. Indeed, it comes from somewhere else entirely. 
It comes from rabbinical teaching. You see what had happened in the exile when the people of Israel were deported to Babylon out of, uh, well, particularly the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. When they were deported out, they all began forgetting Hebrew and learning Aramaic. But of course, as is the case in all communities, there was a select few, uh, those who gave forth the effort and had the luxury to study Hebrew and retained it. And they became the teachers. They became the interpreters. And so the ignorant masses were then dependent on those who could actually read God's law, who could read the Old Testament, who could read the Torah, and could read the prophets and the wisdom literature, and then expound upon it. And thus, we see beginning during the exile a tradition of man-made teaching explaining the Word of God to the people who could not read that Word for themselves. Does that sound familiar at all to those of us who stand in the Protestant tradition? This is the very same situation, analogous anyway, to what was going on in the medieval church. As the people, the masses within the churches could not read the Bible for themselves, they became dependent upon priests and cardinals and bishops and other teachers, some of whom were just as ignorant as they were, to explain to them what the Bible was saying and thus fell into all manner of strange errors, particularly that of religious formalism of externalism, of thinking that Christianity was all about living a certain way and not living out of a certain kind of heart. And that's what was retrieved in the Protestant Reformation, is that God comes and He renews the heart, and He does the work for us such that we might then go out and live. And that's what Jesus is doing. As I've said in the past, He comes not merely, or only, I should say, as a Redeemer, but particularly as a Reformer. Not bringing an innovative teaching, but recovering that which was lost and shrouded by the, the shadows of time and false teaching. And that's what he's doing here. He's correcting the false teaching. He's not correcting the moral law of God. Indeed, he said in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to do what? To fulfill. A big part of that is recovering it. And applying it then to the hearts of his listeners and the disciples. So what was it that he's unmasking here then? Well, in that uh, non-capitalized uh, clause in the second half of verse 21 here, notice what it says. Whoever commits murder shall be liable not to hellfire, not to the judgment of God, but to the court. See what the Pharisees and the scribes have done, what the, what the ancient rabbis have done. They've taken that which was fundamentally spiritual, having to do with the heart, about murder and, and, and murderous intent, and they've made it purely political. They've said, if you murder someone, well, then you're going to have to be dragged before the courts of men and punished, and rightly punished. And they had a whole system on how they did that. Now, is there anything wrong with the courts of men punishing murder? No, by no means. We're supposed to do that. In fact, God says to Noah in Genesis uh, chapters 8 and 9, after the flood narrative, he says, um, he, who takes, he who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for life is in the blood. And so surely there's something right about this. But it's a half measure. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, they stopped here. Like that man I met who said, well, I've never killed anyone. They think that as long as they haven't done that, they're not liable to judgment. In fact, there's no spiritual dimension to their application of the Sixth Commandment at all. 
And that's what Jesus is unmasking. And indeed, he unmasks that in our own hearts, does he not? When we approach the law and we think we've fulfilled it simply because we haven't committed adultery, we haven't committed murder. You know, I've never actually stolen anything. I've always been honest on my taxes and in all my business dealings. Now, I've wanted to steal things before. I've wanted to cheat on my taxes. I've thought about it. I came very close. But, you know, that's not a sin because I didn't actually act on it. And Jesus comes and he's going to unmask that superficiality of ours. He's going to lay bare our hearts as he applies the law to our hearts. And that's what we see here in verse 22 as he's recovering now the heart of the law. Notice what he says. He says, but I... Really, better translated, I myself say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So Jesus does a couple of things here. But first, notice his method. He lays out these three, uh, three cases before his disciples. And this is something that the Pharisees and the scribes used to do a lot of. It's called casuistry. It's applying theoretical rules or, uh, or hypotheses, different scenarios to particular instances then to show the absurdity of something or to show the, the legitimacy of something. And Christ, in this case, is showing the absurdity of the Pharisees' thinking. What court exists that can adjudicate anger? It's a motion of the heart. No man can see that. What court? Would, would the Supreme Court really hear a case of a man who said, you good for nothing to somebody out in the street? Perhaps you've been driving around men and someone cuts you off and you mutter something under your breath. And then you hear Big Brother through your radio say, your arraignment before the Supreme Court of the United States is next Tuesday for muttering something under your breath to that man on the road. No, it's a ridiculous scenario. And that's what Christ is doing. He's showing how foolish the thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes is, just how insufficient their thinking is for getting to the heart of the matter regarding the Sixth Commandment. And then he goes all the way right to the very heart of the matter, when he says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough not to go before the court or the Supreme Court, but to go into the fiery hell. In recovering the heart of the law, Jesus is arraying before us, putting on full display for us the spiritual nature of the law, the spiritual consequences of transgressing God's law, even in those secret, unseen realms of our hearts. In so doing, in presenting these three situations, he makes one point, and that is the sixth commandment must be applied to the heart. And God, not the state, no man-made authority, is the ultimate judge. Patrick Schreiner, in his book on... On Matthew, it's a fine book. In fact, I recommend it to you, Matthew, Disciple and Scribe. He makes a very good point here, and I want to I share it with you because I think it was just that helpful to us. He says that the intent of the law, even in the Torah, is not merely to prevent murder, namely in the civil sphere, but also to warn the people against anger, insults, and disunity. It is to be a stimulus 
for love. That is something that makes us love and love him more. So Jesus points them back to the law and says, this is what it always meant. But I, as the Messiah, needed to show you how. Indeed, isn't that what we just confessed about Christ as prophet? He comes revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God, namely for our salvation, but also for our very lives. Jesus stands up as the new Moses and does not intensify the law, but rather returns or reforms to the original intention of the law. And we see that even here as he showcases, as he unmasks the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and recovers the heart of the law. And where is this expounded for us elsewhere in the New Testament? Well, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a pretty definitive statement of what Christ has just illustrated in this satire on the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then James 1.20, James writes, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so as you consider how you measure up in terms of keeping the law of God and keeping those Ten Commandments, when we, when we recite them every other week, even in your presence in our morning service, as you, as you seek to memorize them at home, boys and girls, I hope that you're not just putting them up on your wall and saying, yeah, I keep all those because I don't do any of the things it says. No, I hope you're using it as a mirror before your very soul. Whenever the stirring of anger, particularly unjust anger, unrighteous anger, anger without a cause, or without a good cause, I should say, do you see that as worthy of God's judgment against you, of condemnation even unto eternal fire? As Jesus says, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Well, if Christ addresses and condemns unholy, unrighteous anger in verses 21 and 22, he then puts forward his program for fulfilling the positive requirements of the sixth commandment. That is making peace, then in verses 23 through 26. You see, each of the commandments forbids certain things and then requires other things. What does the sixth commandment forbid? Not just the act of murder, of taking someone's life but even the very feelings of unrighteous or unholy anger. And then it requires, what does Christ show us in 23 through 26? Making peace. And making peace for two things. One, for God's eternal glory in verses 23 and 24. And then two, for your eternal good in verses 25 and 26. So first, for God's eternal glory, we see in these verses in 23 and 24 a little illustration that Christ gives that shows us that seeking peace and making peace is necessary for glorifying God. There's a necessity here of reconciliation between man and man for God to receive glory from his people. Look at verse 23 with me. Therefore, see Jesus is introducing now his positive commands. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, the sense of the Greek here is if you're going along the way to present your offering at the altar, which would have been the act of worship in preeminent in everyone's minds under the old covenant church, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you suddenly remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. There's a couple things here which should be remarkable to us. First, isn't the first table of the law, that having to do with the worship of God, isn't that supposed to be the preeminent thing over the second table of the law? That is the rules governing our interactions with one another? Yes. So if that's the case then, why is it that Jesus tells us to interrupt worship? To interrupt worship, the worship of Almighty God, if we think of some way that we've transgressed and offended our brothers. Why does he do that? Jesus is using this this extraordinary scenario to press home to us a reality that God has made very clear in his word again and again in the Old Testament, both by narrative illustration and also by um, clear instruction, that God is pleased with obedience more than sacrifice. God is pleased with obedience more than sacrifice. We see this illustrated a few different ways. First, in 1 Samuel 15, the situation where Saul, the king, is waiting for Samuel to show up, and Samuel's not coming. Um, Oh, no, 1 Samuel 15 is a different situation where Saul is commanded to totally eradicate the Amalekites as well as all um, all of their possessions. It's a 100% annihilation. And what does Saul do? Well, he saves the oxen, the sheep, you know, some of the treasure, even, even King Agag. And, and he's thinking, okay, well, I'm going to use all of these things to worship God. Because uh, that's a better idea than doing what God told us to do. I think I have that right with 1 Samuel 15. And what happens here? In this disobedience, Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul doesn't do that. So then Samuel rebukes Saul in the same chapter and he says... The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. But Samuel said, What is this sound of bleeding in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul says, Well, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And as a result of this sad situation, almost immediately in the next chapter, someone else is anointed king in Saul's place. You see, God delights in obedience even more than sacrifice. And something that he positively commands us to do is to seek peace one with another. And so if you try to use the worship of God as an excuse for not reconciling, not taking the time out of your busy schedule to reconcile with your brother or your sister in Christ or even your neighbor, God's not going to receive your worship. That's the message that Christ is giving here in this illustration in verses 23 and 24. He says, Indeed, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present the offering. 
This brings to mind as well the whole situation with Cain and Abel. Why did God reject Cain's offering? Well, it wasn't given out of sincerity of heart, or it wasn't given according to what God made clear to them he expected. And then Psalm 65, which speaks of God as a hearer of prayers, is followed up by Psalm 66, 18, where we read that God will in no wise hear the prayers of those who disobey him. In fact, it's worth reading this word for word. In Psalm 66, 18, we read, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So when do you do this? When do you go and seek to be reconciled? Well, as soon as you're made aware that there's reconciliation to be sought. There's a necessity of reconciliation in order to give God the eternal glory he deserves and that he demands of us. Westminster Larger Catechism 135 puts it this way. One of the positive duties of the sixth commandment is a readiness to be reconciled. No hesitation. Now, not only is this making peace necessary for God's eternal glory, not only is there a necessity of reconciliation here, but it's also necessary for your eternal good. Now, surely I'm speaking to an audience, a group of hearers that's fairly mature. You know that giving glory to God is indeed for your good. That's what we were made to do, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so if we can't glorify God, then we're missing out on, on man's chief, not only duty, but also delight. But Christ makes it even clearer for us with this illustration in verses 25 and 26, where he puts before us the urgency of reconciliation for your eternal good. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Jesus uses this illustration now, not of worship, but drawn from the civil court. He's almost coming full circle, hitting right back at where he began with the Pharisees. And he gives this illustration of being on your way to the court. And again, it's a bit of an extraordinary situation where you're walking even along the same road as the person that's accusing you of something, your adversary at court, someone who's suing you probably for some kind of commercial problem. And isn't it so much better to settle out of court than to be arraigned before the judge, be dragged in front of the judgment seat? You see, you boys and girls have very merciful parents. But I want to tell you something as you grow up. This is an important lesson to learn. It is very rare for us to receive mercy from civil judges when we're brought before the judgment bar. If you ever get dragged in front of a judge, you're probably not going to receive mercy. In fact, they're inclined to bring forth the heaviest penalty possible upon you in every case. And that was true in ancient Israel, and it's true today. And so Jesus is drawing from this situation to make his point that there is an urgency to be reconciled with those um, with whom you have some kind of break in relationship or some kind of problem. Don't remain angry. Rather, go and settle out of court for there's coming a judgment day when you will be arraigned before the bar of God and God is going to hold to account all that which was done in deeds of the flesh. Now, there's a wisdom point here as well. This doesn't mean you have to go and air all your dirty laundry all the time. You can go to somebody and simply say, please forgive me for offending you. 
Please forgive me for that, un- that careless word I spoke. Please forgive me uh, for allowing bitterness to dwell in my heart over such and such situation we've faced in the past. But that doesn't mean you have to go through every little detail of the whole transaction lest you multiply transgressions through the multiplication of words. And so there's wisdom to be pursued here. But the main point that Christ makes here is that there is a spiritual judgment coming. And so the urgency of reconciliation is such that if you would pursue your eternal good, you would heed his words in the application of the sixth commandment to your heart. That, oh, you want to address anger and you want to do it rightly. Well, then pursue peace. Make peace. What did Christ say to us in verse 9 of this same chapter? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who seek for peace between man and man, particularly those in his church, those who have been gathered to Christ by the Spirit of God in making peace shall be called sons of God, welcomed to the Father's table and to his heavenly kingdom. That's what Christ is setting before his disciples. Make peace. Make peace. So what should I have said to the man who claimed that merely refraining from murder is sufficient for entrance into heaven? Indeed, it is good that you have not murdered someone, my friend, but have you ever harbored a secret hatred of someone in your heart? Have you ever cursed someone under your breath? Have you ever yelled at your wife or your children, perhaps your parents when you were in a rage for no good reason? Have you ever struck someone with your fist? Have you ever thought, and I wish that guy would just go away and leave me alone? You see, the very thoughts of your heart, sir, are on display before the judgment throne of God. Yes, man can judge whether or not you've murdered someone, but God can judge every intent, every motion, every stirring of your heart. And he considers even the passing thought of unrighteous anger to be deserving of hellfire unworthy of the glory that awaits all those in whom he is well pleased. But there is good news, isn't there? And that is that Christ addresses anger by making peace. Christ has come, and he addresses anger by making peace. He does this not only by setting before us his royal program for his people as our king who teaches righteously, but he does this in his very life as our priest making reconciliation between God and man as we confessed earlier in our service. See, he's done this by the shedding of his own blood on the cross. He addresses not just the unjust anger of man in his teaching and rebuking it, but he addresses the holy, unfiltered, distilled, righteous, and just anger of God by making peace between God and man where we could not find peace on our own. Brothers and sisters, This is the gospel that we preach, that Christ Jesus himself, who taught us the way of life in the world today and the way of eternal life, indeed bore the full wrath of God on the cross, the righteous anger of God against sin, even the secret sins of our hearts, that we might enjoy the peace of God that comes by the application of his mercy to our lives through faith in Christ alone. And so, look to this capital P, peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the only begotten Son of God, sent into the world to rescue sinners such as you and me, angry folk that we were, and to make us peacemakers, that in this Son of God, we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High ourselves. Find peace, then, at the foot of the cross, where the peacemaker laid down his life for the sheep. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.